1: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be
0: proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 161. Before I kick off my interview with Dan, I want to make sure that if you're a business owner with revenues from $2 million to $100 million and a timeline that is between one year and 10 years, that you're aware of our growth and exit boot camps that are in Minnesota at Bethel University on October 8th, 9th, and 10th. It's two and a half days, jam packed full of the five principles on how to grow the value of your company, understanding all your different exit options, how to hire your team of advisors. And maximize the valuation and the outcome that you want, which is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. But take it from me this is a boot camp that you just don't want to miss. It's all the stuff that I wish I would have known before we sold the company. We packaged all the resources and experience from Pat Hobby, who is going to be leading it, who is the Arcona partner, who has gone through tons of transactions himself through an ESOP to private equity. All the resources are packed together into two and a half days so that way you can walk out and control your growth and exit plan with the business and get what you want. So trust me, if there is a place to get all the information, this is it. If you go to the registration page, you can plug in a promo code until September 9th and that promo code is LAB10. So that's L-A-B for life after business, 10 for 10% off. So off of the $5,000, dollars you get 500 bucks off up until September 9th. And if you're still not sure whether you should go or not, after you listen to this episode with Dan Grimstrud, who is an M&A, so mergers and acquisitions attorney at Best in Flanagan, he's been doing this for 15 years. Tons and tons of transactions that he's seen everywhere from $5 million to $250 million. And what I really enjoyed about this episode and with Dan is that Dan's got a finance background. So he's not only an attorney, but he understands the finance and operations and strategies of companies. So he understands what it's like on the sell side and the buy side. So what we're going to be covering today is... How due diligence and preparatory due diligence can keep your value that you want. So, if someone offers you five million bucks, that you have the highest probability to get that five million dollars and that it doesn't get pushed into earnouts, it doesn't get pushed because we discuss all the different ways that legal due diligence and how to work a team of advisors to make sure that you have the biggest form of leverage, which is building a repository in a valuable company where you can have. 10 buyers at the table and you know that you can sell to any one of them because that is the only leverage that you have until the money gets wired in your bank account. So what you're going to learn on this podcast today is the role of legal and the role of an M&A attorney how to do preparatory due diligence and to get yourself ready so that way any out of the blue offer that happens, you know exactly what price you want and how to stay true to that price because you've done all the homework that the buyer would do anyways. And then we're going to discuss how to hire a team of advisors, how they should collaborate to make sure that legal tax and wealth and everybody's working together so that way you can go get what you want. And the huge takeaway that I want to really get home is that this work is worth it. If you want a bag full of money, you got to do some hard work. But if you learn this stuff, then you can delegate it, which is what our boot camps are for. But if you learn this stuff, you have the highest probability of getting what you want out of a transaction. And it's a great episode where Dan and I talk all about the different ways and the due diligence process from the buy and the sell side with some really great examples. So I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Dan Grimsrud
1: sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey.
0: Good morning, Dan. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. How are
0: you? Doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, as you and I were talking, um, I have not had a specific legal specialist and specialist might not be the right word for you, but um, you know that is going to be able to touch on all the different bullet points that we are going to be able to cover in a way that it's actually not boring as heck. So I'm excited to have you on the show. We've worked with clients together, and um, you just have a different style and a different um, kind of model that I just I'm I'm just excited to. Have the listeners understand that there's people out there like you that can really help. So, without you know diving too much into it, well, let me maybe give the listeners uh, a background clip version then of your background because I think it's an interesting where even your designate or the the degree that you got and kind of how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm excited to be here and uh, excited and appreciative of, uh, of that intro. You know, yeah, I was an accounting and finance major in undergrad and. You know, the decision to go to law school wasn't really about not wanting to do those things as it, as it was about just sort of trying to build out the skill set a little further. I, I went to law school knowing I wanted to be a transactional lawyer and, you know, kind of help people figure out how to, how to you know, buy a business or sell a business and, and, you know, obviously ultimately on the sell side, maximize value. And so that was just kind of always, you know, in my head as, a, as an ultimate goal. So yeah, uh, accounting and finance undergrad, and then went to law school and took every kind of transaction-focused class I could, which thankfully, you know, the law schools do a little better job about uh, providing those opportunities, you know, in in the modern world than they did in the past. So got a chance to actually get some helpful training there, and then just, uh, yeah, got out and, and sort of tried to get involved in as many of those as, as quickly as I could and uh now here you know 15 years later kind of have managed to mostly uh work on the kinds of things that i want to work on uh, all day long so it's been it's uh-huh. good
0: i love it and like the the thing that i find is interesting and you're gonna laugh about this because like i was doing this keynote and we were talking about you know our five principles and such and um, i was talking about the legal role and they're like no lawyers know what working capital is <laughs> so like <if> I- <laughs> That you actually have a finance degree, I think, is really interesting, and kind of, that, and we'll tie we'll we'll tie that back into like the different kind of roles of attorneys. But I just think it's interesting because I don't know if what your your if you kind of comment on that. But uh, you know, like knowing business and understanding business and transactions is just way different than just you know filling out a piece of paper.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that's interesting is people kind of get that piece wrong a little bit in both directions, right? I mean, they. You know, some people assume that the lawyer knows nothing about that, about that piece of it. And other people, you know, assume that if that once they know you do know something, they assume you're going to kind of want to run point on that. And, you know, for me, most of the deals I work on, you know, there is somebody who's who's, whether it's an investment banker or, you know, an accountant or just an internal resource that is really a 10 out of 10 on that score and that skill set. And, you know, I, oftentimes I'm sort of the wingman on that stuff, but I think the thing that it, it's really valuable to be, you know, be able to understand uh, what the person who's running point on the working capital discussion is doing so that when we're negotiating other aspects of the deal where where those issues are relevant, I'm not, you know, in the dark. So. You know, it's it's not like having the knowledge means that I'm trying to take over that piece, but it does help me, I think, be a better, you know, teammate for whoever it is that's kind of running point.
0: I mean, well said, man. Like, I, I think you bring up a lot of good points in there. And what um, I want to dive into is especially like like you said, having the, like a surface-based knowledge of all these different things, but then where are the, where the different roles and responsibilities come in. But before we kind of go into like the transaction team and some of that stuff, Dan, like, can you just, you know, we can kind of set the, uh, set the stage of like, what is a mergers and acquisitions attorney? How does that compare to the big box shops? How does that compare to my brother-in-law who did my articles of incorporation and my general counsel? I mean, I just, I think the the, the role of an attorney, is so unique because there's so many different kind of niches inside of the world of law that like trying yeah, to, yeah. you and I probably have, yeah you have stories. So you, you get where I'm going with that?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, saying what, what, what is an attorney is sort of saying what is an animal, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that. Um, You know, I think my role, you know, and as you and I have talked about, I mean, I, I'd say my time is you know divided pretty equally probably ultimately between you know my my specialty my area of expertise is m a the other thing i do a lot of is we just serve as an outside general counsel role and um you know so in that chair obviously we see on a you know daily basis all the different kinds of issues whether they be you know employment or contract or regulatory or you know tax and so you know, I think these two things go really well together because at the end of the day, I always think about an m and attorney. I mean, I tell people my, my job, I'm, I'm a, pro, I'm a professional puzzle assembly person, right? I mean, my clients come and they, they dump a puzzle onto the table and, you know, I help them figure out how to put it, how to put that puzzle together. And I think the, the, the couple key components of that are one, you know, um, you have skills and experience and expertise that you build through every transaction, but each transaction is unique. You know, mm-hmm. if you, if you try to take the exact same approach to putting together, you know, the train puzzle as you did to putting together, you know, the, the shark puzzle, that's going to be a failure. And so, you know, I I, 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 sort of think every deal is different. You know, obviously we do deals both buy side and sell side. We do deals you know, from 5 million to 250 million. You know, I think where we have some, I I think, really special, uh, you know, uh, and positive dynamics at our firm is that we really are sort of relentless about looking at each deal independently and not trying to take, you know, the deal and kind of jam it into our system, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think to me, that's what You know, I I think that there's a different, to your earlier point, doing M&A deals that are $10 billion deals or $100 billion deals, that's a different business than I'm in. Those people, the process that we've built and run here would have no utility there and vice versa. And so we're not trying to be all things to all people. We're trying to have an approach that allows us to do these deals in this you know, lower middle market. You know efficiently, thoughtfully, and sort of on a customized basis well, and and so that's <laughs> you know that's sort of how I would describe our
0: which which is a good good context and I think that to to even peel back a little bit farther too because like the like, as I described to our clients or to any business owners that and and I, I might be totally wrong on this, but it's extremely efficient and works but the the, if you're gonna have a legal professional like that is going to be packaging up and then help, helping you engineer an outcome, whether it's an ESOP or a third party strategic mm-hmm. or whether it's a private equity recap or an internal buy every one of those is completely different. So like your, to your analogy it's a different puzzle but like in con- yeah. concept to, get to like, <laughs> like your analogies is like we're playing puzzles right versus like a, you know yeah. a forest attorney or a real estate attorney or someone else that's a different law designation doesn't do puzzles. And I think that's the biggest yeah. challenge. A lot of people are like, oh, you're an attorney. You must know this kind of stuff. So the fact that you're yeah. in the business of doing puzzles is different than someone else that might have a brother-in-law that's a that an attorney at a random small little firm.
1: Yeah. And I mean, on any given deal, you know, I'm I'm working with, you know, somewhere between two and six specialists in my firm who have specialized subject matter expertise, whether it be real estate you know, employment, employee benefits, regulatory. And those people are coming in and I'm saying, here is this one issue that's come up in the context of this transaction. We need your help to sort of run this to ground. And they're doing, you know, they're they're great lawyers, but they're doing something very different, right? They're doing one discrete task and coming back and saying, here's how we can fix this. Here's how we can solve this. And I'm then having to take that into the context of, obviously, a multidimensional, you know, transaction and make sure that the solution that they're proposing doesn't jam us up elsewhere. And so, you know, it's just a different, I would never say that, you know, one role is more important than the other. They're all important, but it, it, it is very different. And to your point, I don't think that, you know, the person who does one, is necessarily very well suited to the other and vice versa. Right.
0: And like, what's interesting, Dan, like in kind of the, another uh, layer of this discussion is that, you know, when you, going back to my earlier point about the MA attorney is like, I think the MA attorney should be the project manager of almost all things legal. And that's where I think to your point, the general counsel fits in pretty well because like in, you know, based on our model, you know, we talk about, Sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow, which is the the glue behind all this yeah. is legal stuff, right so you end up having to touch yeah. all these things to transfer the cash yeah. flow to anybody, so you have to yeah. touch yeah. All different parts of it,
1: yeah, and you have to be able to maintain kind of a um, bias towards seeing the forest first, you know I think <laughs> if you get too deep you know you the danger of you know missing the forest for the trees is real. And I I like your, you know, your comment about project management. I mean, I think that is what a lot of what it's about. And, you know, and then being a strategic thinker, which I mean, you know, probably other people can do more things at the same time than I can, but I don't think you can be kind of thinking about the transaction at a high level, trying to see it multidimensionally at the same time as you're down in the weeds trying to work through a 409A issue. I mean, those are separate things. And I I think it's, at least for me, again, it's just my limitation, but for me, it's hard to do both at the same time. So I try to stay up um, and keep my head up.
0: Well, and and to the force, to the puzzle and what the picture is, right? So maybe we'll we'll make this a little bit more tangible to people because what I wanted to make sure that we're kind of covering some of these things is like, you know, the due diligence process before and then during the transaction and then kind of how the level fits into that. But then also, you know the different types of puzzles I, I love this analogy obviously <laughs> you can tell like you know the difference between internal transition versus private equity versus ESOP and how yeah. that those right. are of what the preparatory work needs to be done because to your point you're look if you're looking at the bigger picture you're trying to connect all these dots so maybe kind of we can kind of take a you know I don't know which yeah. route you want to go first
1: yeah no I mean I think just to your to your point about kind of preparing I mean I I encourage people you know I'm I'm I sit on some advisory boards for clients and, you know, we have meetings on a regular basis. And one of the things I always push, and I think it's one of the things that's really uh, exciting and interesting about the work that you and your colleagues are doing, because I I haven't perceived that there are very many people who are are a good resource on this front. I mean, I I, I always tell clients, you know, let's pretend like you're going to sell your business at the end of the year and look at it through that lens and say, what are the things that are going to be impediments to getting to maximizing value? And, you know, even for clients that have no intention that have, you know, that have a long runway and intention to own and run their business for 20 years. I mean, I think that's a great exercise because it forces you, it's just a lens, you know, it's a way to mm-hmm. to look at your business from a different perspective, the way that an outside party would, if they were thinking about buying it and having you know, people on your advisory team that can help you do that and can, you know, uh, help you be disciplined about doing that because that takes some time and some bandwidth that, you know, most business owners have plenty of things to devote their time and bandwidth to. And, you know, but to me looking at, you know, to to stick with the puzzle analogy, you know, sort of the pre-transaction diligence failure is a missing puzzle piece, right? I mean, I don't care how good I am, at putting puzzles together. If you give me a puzzle, you know, a 400 piece puzzle where there are 10 pieces missing, this isn't going to turn out well. And to me, those pieces are, you know, those are the, those are the, you know, a problematic contract with a key customer, you know, a a regulatory exposure that is out there that, you know, is significant, you know, a, a failure to have Key customer facing, you know, sales folks uh, locked down to some kind of non compete, non solicit. I mean, these kinds of key things that right away are going to undermine value. You know, if you come in and dump the puzzle out and say, you know, hey, I'd like you to put this together and there's 10 of those key pieces missing, I mean, there's not going to be any, I don't have a magic wand. You know, I mean, so we're going to have sometimes. a hard, well, right. I mean, no, That that's the thing. Sometimes somebody <laughs> who hasn't done any of that prep work comes in and says, you know, I want you to help me sell this business. And, you know, I have these three issues. I just want to be upfront about, it. I have these three issues. And, and you know, my, my, my reaction to that is, well, I don't, you know, we, we can't get you the value that you want to need with those three issues
0: well and let's let's put some like it could you're you're totally right and i want to keep, keep going on this topic because if we go back to like what creates a valuable company it's the sustainable predictable cash flow and transferable right so let's say someone's got a million dollars in cash flow and let's say if it's a you know a financial buyer like just for valuation let's say it's a 5x right so it's worth five million dollars well if yeah. someone says okay like dan i want to buy your million dollars in cash flow well as easy as we can do to transfer that. And like what you were talking about, the missing puzzle pieces, this is well, you know, your main sales guy doesn't have a non-compete and he has relationships with a third of the clients. Well, I'm not going to pay for right. that. <laughs> and then like, Oh, no. by the way, right, we got sued that we, and we, and it's a pending litigation on a product default. Like, okay. Like it's all this stuff that like you, it's not worth, you can you can't transfer that stuff. And I think, yeah. you know, the challenge that people, I mean, I, you've probably seen, you got other examples of non-assignable contracts. Like they just didn't even think about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and that's why, I mean, I really, we do, we do work on both sides of the transactions, you know, on, we, we represent buyers and sellers. And I really think when people talk about, you know, do you ever think about specializing? I mean, Absolutely not. I mean, I think it's critical to understand both sides of the transaction because, you know, when you're representing the buyer who, who brings some of the challenges you just described to the table, you know, you, you I'm sorry, when you're representing the seller mm-hmm. who's got, you know, contract issues, you know how you view those issues from the buy side. And yep. so that informs, you know, thoughts about steps that that seller can take to sort of, you know, mitigate, you know, the, the damage that those kinds of facts can do.
0: Well, and let's, so, and let's talk about the process of this because, you know, I, you know, I've been preaching it for years because I mean, I've gone through multiple transactions myself and it's a full cavity search, right? Because if you think about Mm -hmm. it, someone's going to buy, if I'm going to buy your million dollars in cash flow I'm going to pay 5 million bucks, maybe take out a $3 million loan and some equity in there. I'm going to make sure as hell that I cover all all my bases, right? Try and find all of these things. And so, in yeah. that situation, there's, you know, cause I, I'm going back to my point. I was like, I preach like do due, due diligence now because yeah. you can have like a out of the blue offer, yeah. but then what is that? Right. What is the actual process coming from, let's, let's take it from maybe from your perspective, from the buy and the sell side of what, what are the things that they're looking for and how does that work? You know, let's say you were representing a buyer. Cause I think that would be good for the listener. Yeah. Okay. How does that work? And what yeah. do you, what's the process?
1: Yeah. I mean, from the buy side, you know, we're pretty much sitting down with the client and talking about the business. And this is where I think having a little bit of a business background helps because I think you can be, you know, conversant about what is driving this business relatively quickly. And so for me, the first conversation is a 10,000 foot conversation about what is this business? And to your point, What is it that we're buying? What is this income stream that we're buying? And what are the things that have the potential to disrupt it? And what are the things that have the potential to expand it? And, you know, to me, uh, you and I have had this conversation. I don't I don't have you know, we have a few different templates that we use obviously, as a buyer, you are at an early point, sliding a diligence checklist across the table and saying to the seller, here's the things that we want to know about. You know, we don't have one template for that checklist. And I've never sent out a checklist that didn't have some customization in it, because I think you've got to right from the get go figure out what do we care about. And, And that's kind of what I'm talking about doing these lower middle market deals. I think you know, you get some advisors that'll take their template for a $400 million deal and try to drop it onto a $30 million deal. Well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, nobody can tolerate that level, that intensity of process. And so what we try to do is look at it and say, what really matters here? If I'm making up numbers for point for purposes of illustration, but if there are a hundred things that we typically care about, we can look at a specific business and say, okay, these 33 really matter here. You know, these 33 are, are sort of deserve some moderate level of scrutiny, but they're not key drivers. And these, you know, 34 over here are not huge issues. We just need to kind of uh, see enough to be able to have a, a comfort level. And, you know, so I, I would, I'd hesitate to say, you know, just generically, here are the things that really matter. But I mean, obviously, number one, is sort of who are the customers? Who are the contacts with those customers? What are what is our history? What has gone wrong? What has caused us to lose customers? What has helped us gain customers? Because to me, you know, the 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 rest of the world, you know, whether it's regulatory compliance stuff, whether it's HR stuff, I mean, that's stuff that we, as lawyers, can probably fix, can probably figure out ways to inoculate can, our Like that's all. Exactly. We, exactly. We can work with the buyer to figure out how to mitigate their risks on those things. But the, the, the revenue side stuff, you've got to get out in front of it. And that's where I say, having somebody who's your partner, you know, for an extended period before you're trying to sell, who can look at look at the business through that lens and say, you know, here are three issues, you know, three things that that are missing puzzle pieces, and we can recreate them by taking these steps.
0: Well, and, and like and think about it too, Dan, because like that million dollars in cash flow, like if you don't get out in front of that and that goes away, like the, the whole thing doesn't work, right? You don't need IT or HR or anything. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you need your profit yeah. and the cash flow yeah. coming in. Right. And like, and, you know, exactly. well, I was just saying, like, if it, you mean what people like this whole even thing about, about us, like assignable contracts or like what happens if like, you know, we're working with a customer right now, uh, you and I've got a couple of mutual ones, but like, it's like, you know, if you're working with government can like, can that contract assigned to someone yeah. else? And like, maybe this is a good yeah. time to talk about like the asset versus stock sale, <laughs> and how that EIN number works, because all this stuff is so important where yeah. you don't look at yeah. it. You don't even have the ability to sell at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. I mean, so, so a couple things, one thing I would say on the revenue side is I think, you know, it's about two things. It's about one, having your ducks in a row in terms of being able to explain why the revenue stream that you're trying to sell is predictable, is consistent, is protected. You know, the other thing that I think is huge and is oftentimes the difference between, you know, the really fun closing dinner is when a seller got, they rang the bell right i mean right. they got they, they they're they're thrilled and those people that are ringing the bell they've done that first thing they've demonstrated that their that their revenue side is stable predictable protected but the thing they've also done is they've shown that buyer reasons to be hopeful that there are additional har- opportunities that can be harvested so they've shown them some upside and that's where i think getting and that you can't create that overnight, right? I mean, that's where getting somebody involved early and and talking about, hey, you need some more hunters, or you need to be hunting more of this kind of customer, just somebody that's frankly, you know, in the in the chair that you're sitting in looking at this thing holistically and helping, you know, with that piece. I, I think that
0: like, you think about it, like, it's so like, let's go back to the million dollar cash flow and $5 million valuation. So like, let's say we, Put a three million dollar loan on that, and we put two million dollars in equity into it. It was like that's first of all, you're I think the two million uh, three million dollar loan. I, what are the monthly payments of that? Is like I think like thirty grand a month or something like that. So you're sitting there going, okay, well I got like four hundred grand in debt on a million dollars in cash flow. I need to be able to grow this thing. Yeah. And So if you hand right. that and I handed that to you, and I sold my company, you'd go, okay, I know exactly what to do with my profits. <laughs> you're handing yeah. it over. What the? Right. And like yeah. I, did, it you know going back to your point of the the prepping of this stuff like you know you and i and some of the the, the clients that we've worked with together kind of got this whole model and how we've been categorizing the advice from the advisors whether we have like <laughs> one two and three advice or like so level one is just right. gap like okay yeah you know, your nda is signed you have all the articles of incorporation your minutes all that stuff then level two meaning you're ready for an out of the blue offer or <clears throat> any transition cool. transaction regardless of whether it's a you know, an um, internal ESOP third party because it, it ju- we just know that it's transferable. And that, then the level three being like, we're engineering this towards a specific outcome. But like, how many mm-hmm. times do you see like, you know, in that level two of knowing that like something, an out of the blue offer happens, how many times do you have that happen when someone says, I don't want to sell. <laughs> and if I had a dollar for this, I swear to God for every time it happens, but I don't want to sell. And then an out of the blue offer happens and they have nothing for yeah. Them. Like how many times, I mean, what yeah. is what is your advice to people about that or what's your experience with
1: it? Yeah I mean it, it happens with regularity right yeah and you don't really sometimes you understand what the drivers are and sometimes it even even being in you know in in the room with a good viewpoint it just seems totally random and that's sort of why I just think you know it's to me everybody has a price at which it makes sense to sell right I mean and, and frankly there's a point at which you're crazy not to right I mean if you have an opportunity to harvest mm-hmm great value and take those chips off the table and redeploy them elsewhere. And so I kind of push pretty hard when clients say there's no scenario where I'm going to sell because I just think that's ultimately not a very thoughtful answer. And I think to me that reflects a a lack of really uh, willingness to devote some time and energy to thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's I mean, so I kind of try to use to, to get people to acknowledge that, yes, there is that scenario and then to see the benefit of um, spending some time again, whether it's quarterly or even just annually. I mean, just getting in the habit of dedicating some time and, and finding some advisors that can help you actually get some return on that investment of time. By mapping out what does this look like and what are our problems, and you know, I would go back to your question about stock versus asset. I mean, obviously an overgeneralization, but almost always better for a seller to to sell their stock. You know, almost always preferable for a buyer to buy assets. And you know, one of the things when you're on the set, when I when I when I talk to people about this idea that they need to be thinking about their exit for, you know, they need to have some runway. They need to be thinking about that for a period of time before they're actually going to be ready to do it. You know, I would say, I mean, let's try to position this thing so that we can make a straight-faced argument that this thing is so buttoned down that a stock sale doesn't, you know, that, that a buyer doesn't have any reason to have any legitimate heartburn about buying the stock. And then, If we're in that position, then we actually have the ability to, to, if the buyer does insist on doing a stock deal, we actually have the ability to, I'm sorry, doing an asset deal. You know, then we actually have the ability to say, well, fine, we'll do it. But then you're going to pay the difference, you know, the tax difference for us. You know, what what happens to sellers who aren't ready is these buyers get in there and the seller says, well, I want to sell stock. And the buyer says, because the buyers are (laughs) sophisticated, they say, oh, well, we'll, you know, we, we usually buy assets, but we're open to that. So let's, let's just kind of get the process going and we'll figure <laughs> it out. And then right. they get in there and they find a couple things that are problematic. And they now have a bulletproof reason Case. to yeah. say to the seller, we're not going to buy stock. And when they're in that position, you're never going to get the increased purchase price on an asset deal to mitigate, you know, the, 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 the tax cost. And so, you know, there, your, your comp, your question about stock versus asset to me is a great lens through which to view, you know, the, the, the challenges that you can have if you don't get started, you know, getting your, your, your house in order.
0: Well, and if you think about it, Dan, and, and I right now, especially because of like, the economy people trying to manufacture growth and like you know lowest interest rates the whole mna marketplace is very interesting pe firms are overspending mm-hmm. so you have these people that are paid to spend money to buy companies so you know i, I call mm-hmm. it the fishing expedition right so you say okay dan i want to buy your company for five million bucks so let's just take this example again and then you go oh that's interesting like i could maybe do that you know and and then you think you know okay well first of all, have you even run the numbers of it, whether it's an asset or stock, how much in payoff debt, how much money you're going to actually walk away with compared to your $250,000 salary. And then you say, okay, well, yeah, the, you, you start that whole process. Maybe you can kind of give the lens of like, so it's like that, you know, you get a offer and then there's a, a, a letter of intent. Well, you can't renegotiate. Mm-hmm. right? So you're sitting there going, okay, well, right. and, and I'm, where I'm getting to, to the point of like the deal structure. So like, let's say as I'm fired, yeah. trying to buy your company. And I say that, so you maybe walk through yeah. as you watch the the seller go through the mental process of going from five million to wait, how much is up front? What happened in due diligence that reduced that price yeah. price? And then what are the different ways that the right. buyer push the deal structure, yeah. Mescrow and earnouts and all that? So you maybe kind of walk what yeah. happens to the five million all the way down to what actually happens at closing?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, obviously it usually starts with a conversation, you know, with, with the prospective buyer and the seller. Um, you know, that's that's step one. They get connected at a trade show or whatever, and the buyer says, you know, would you ever think about it? And the seller says, yeah, I mean, I'd think about it. And And they kind of have that conversation, and there's an openness, and they you know, that then translates into, you know, potentially depending on size of the deal and who the players are. I mean, it just, it might go right to a letter of intent or there might be, you know, there might be an interim, just kind of a term sheet. You know, oftentimes maybe it's just an email or a one page document that just sort of lays it out at a very high level. And, you know, then you go to a letter of intent that gets a little more, you know, gets a little bit more into the detail. And then obviously ultimately negotiate a definitive agreement and close the transaction. I think, you know, one of the things I always try to do every once in a while, we we've all seen this. There's a lightning bolt. I mean, there's something that you know. There is a buyer who has a unique position where they they come across a, a business that that they have unique reasons to to need, and they make an offer. You know, that just doesn't make any sense. It's too good, right? It, it's one of those too good to be true, and that happens very rarely. And when it does you know, we've had some of those where I've said, you know what, we've got to just pursue this because this is, this really is too good to be true. The multiples too good to be true. The buyer that there's so much synergy and, and strategic advantage for the buyer that they're willing to pay more than anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, but so, but set those aside because those are unicorns, right? I oh, mean, you oh. don't, you don't build process based on, unicorns. I think a lot of people try to, but yeah, I agree. (laughs) Well, right. I know. And that's part of the problem. I mean, to me, you know, you talk about what are the danger points. I mean, to me, every one of those checkpoints that I talked about is a danger point for the seller. And that's where I hate to keep coming back to the same thing, but that's where having some process on the front end, getting your ducks in a row really comes into play. I've got a deal right now where we're down the road, you know, uh, and 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 closing in on, you know, uh, having a definitive agreement. And the but the, those that you're you still have open issues. And you know, when you have a seller who has a business that's running really well, who has all their ducks in a row, who has all their contract stuff figured out, you will never, until you get the wire, you will never stop facing attempts by the buyer to make the deal a little better for them. Yeah. And the best tool that you have to thwart those attempts is, you know, your business is saleable to 10 other people, right. you know, because of how dialed in it is. So to me, you know, there's risk at, for a seller at every one of those points. And the best way to mitigate that risk is not to think, you know, that you can have some kind of magical LOI, that'll eliminate anybody's ability to try to renegotiate or retrade because that you'll never, that doesn't exist. The LOI always gives the buyer the opportunity to revisit issues in the form of definitive agreement. So really you're, you know, you're going into that battle with the only protection you have. And the only lever you have is you have a good, strong business that you know could sell to any one of 10 people. And you can keep reminding the buyer every time they try to get, one more tweak in their favor, you can keep saying, as we said last time, the answer is no. And if you don't like the deal, (laughs) then we'll go, we'll go sell to these other guys.
0: Yep. Well, and, and man, Dan, you just nailed it on that. I mean like you're totally right. Like the only leverage you have is other buyers and like let's walk through those checkpoints and make, you know, give some tangible examples. So like, let's say you have two different people, right? So you got one that's got like all their ducks in a row They've got 10 people and they can keep saying no, but like, what, what are the, mm-hmm. the, explain in maybe some detail on the, what they will, might come back to renegotiate. Cause like, yeah, like I said that I would buy your yeah. company for 5 million bucks. Yeah. I think about an asset sales yeah. so checkpoint one, we go from asset to stock or I'm sorry, from stock to asset. Yep. Okay. So there I lose, right. I lose 500 grand. And then at these other checkpoints, yeah. what are deal structure things that could happen? Like, let's say things come up. What yeah. Would What's the kind of,
1: so, I mean, a couple examples, right. They could, they could see, they could see some, they could see some issues with customers with key customers and they could say, um, you know what, we've, we've got reason to be concerned about the status of the relationship with customer a. And so we're gonna, you know, that's, we're gonna, we want to earn out component. We offered to buy your business for 5 million. And we'll still give you five, but now we want to give you three and two million in the form of this earn out. And the, the and, and I've done this on the buy side, right? I mean, the, the buyer will say, well, don't worry. If you perform just like you are today, um, you'll get the other two. And, you know, so it, they, they sort of set it up as if you're the seller, they want you to feel like you'd be unreasonable to Object, but of course the problem is they will be running the business. So yeah, if yeah. they're looking at the business and saying we have actually a strategic objective to move away from, you know, business line one, and and put more of our energy in the business line two, if that's the way buyers thinking, there may well be a short, uh, you know, post closing there w- may well be a short term, you know, sort of yeah. step back for the business. Mm-hmm. In order for them to achieve their long-term objectives, well, if you're dealing with an earnout, if you just got five two million of your five million moved over to an earnout, that might cost you two million. So I know. you know that's 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 one that happens. The other one that'll happen is you know if they if you have a regulatory exposure or contract issue, you know they'll say, we want to put a million dollars in escrow for you know a year pending resolution of this issue. And, you know, again, it's sort of when the buyer presents it, it sort of sounds like, well, you know, that's not unreasonable and we'll eventually get our money and I'm confident we can work through it. But, you know, that's the devil's in the details on these things. I mean, oftentimes you end up with the money in escrow and you end up with the buyer saying, no, you didn't really eliminate that risk. And the seller's saying, yeah, I did. I mean, you'd have to have, you know, a lightning bolt and a hurricane and and, and an asteroid all at the same time for you to have a problem. And they said, well, yeah, but that could happen. So yeah you know so i mean those are you know that's a couple examples i mean obviously there's a million ways that that can happen but my point is it it, it can you know to me it all comes back to as the seller you know you've got to have a performing business and and all your ducks in a row you know because that's ultimately how you're going to fend off these attempts which you know with a few exceptions i mean almost every buyer is going to at some point try to get a little better deal
0: well and the thing behind all this dan is you just Hopefully this is for the for everybody that's listening that it's tangible stories, right? Because I mean, so many people, Dan, like, I don't want I mean, I get the pushback out the time, we're not ready, we're not ready, we're not ready to sell. I'm like, you have no idea what the game is that you're gonna play. And you're gonna do this once, right? So these buyers yeah. know all this stuff. So you're I always joke around that yeah, the buyers or the sellers are playing checkers, so they're you know jumping pieces and then the seller sellers playing checkers and the buyers playing 3d chess and three boards at a time (laughs) and they go okay well yeah seller gets infatuated with this five million dollar mark and then if you think about your example of let's call it the the five million so you get three million up front and this is if it's an asset sale so you're going okay well i get 50 percent in tax and i have a million dollars in debt they might only walk away with a million bucks you know and then you go well i got two million in earnout, which has different tax rate. I mean, you're talking oh, yeah. you get a million and a half dollars out of the whole $5 million sale.
1: Well, and yeah, and to me, that's why I think one of the many things that I think is critical in terms of, you know, the work that the potential seller needs to do on the front end before they're even in this conversation is they need to have, you know, one of the things that these sellers need to do. And this just goes with being willing to dedicate some time and bandwidth to thinking about these things. I mean, they need to go through an analysis with their tax advisor, you know, of what does a sale look like and really have a real, a really clear understanding of what they feel like they need. And I just feel so much better when we go into a deal where we have that on the front end, because then when, you know, everybody gets sick of these deals, right? I mean, even a, you know, a $15 million deal, I mean, depending on who your buyer is, I mean, they can move quickly. But if there's no, you know, external, you know, uh, sort of driver that that forces it onto a faster timeline, I mean, this can be, you know, a six-month process, you know, from the time you sign a letter of intent until the time you close. It certainly doesn't need to be that long. It can get done, you know, much uh, much more quickly than that. But, you know, and people get tired. And, you know, having that clear understanding on the front end of what you need you know, is, is part of, you know, to me, I want to go back when the deal evolves and look and, and pull out that piece of paper and say to them, okay, this deal has evolved in a way where you're not getting that, right. you know, and now are you really okay with that? Or are you just tired of, of the process? Because, you know, unless you're really okay with it, you know, let's, let's talk about what our other options are. Cause I, you know, I, you hate to see somebody obviously sell a, an asset for, for less than it's worth because they're just, because they're tired.
0: Well, and and there's so many things on that too. So just before I want to go back to the dollar amount and how much people need, but like, think about this. (laughs) And another reason why what we're doing with our clients that together is so important is you build the relationships with these advisors ahead of time. So they know what you want, because if you go from zero of any of this stuff to, okay, I got an LOI and it's a 5 million. And then you're getting the shit kicked out of you for six months. And you're all of a sudden working day and night with these advisors that you don't have relationships with and you might not even like. <laughs> so it's like, it's so, yeah. you, you, you know, having that whole thing. So it's like going into a professional football game with a team you've practiced with for a long, long time, you know? And yeah. it, right. it, that alone, because I mean, I think about our advisors, our CPA went hunting on a hunting trip in the middle of our transaction, like couldn't get a hold of <laughs> I'm serious, man. Like we're talking about like negotiating big dollar amounts and he's shooting wild boar out of the country. And it's just like,
1: well, and one of the things I think, you know, you've asked this question before, but one of the things I would say to people, which, you know, might get me in trouble with the lawyers union, but, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I always say to people is, you know, if you're talking about hiring somebody to help you put this puzzle together, you know, obviously, um, the most important, you know, puzzle of your life, you know, talk to your other advisors because one of the dynamics that's out there, you know, if, if you go higher without any, without inviting your, your advisors into the process, if you go hire, you know, your, your brother, your brother-in-law's buddy, you know, that's one transaction for that person. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm not suggesting obviously that that means they're not going to be professional about it, but you know, when I get a referral from, you know, an you know, a, cons, a consultant or an advisor like you, or an accountant or a banker. You know, that's that's an opportunity to establish a relationship with someone that's going to send a bunch of referrals. You know, potentially. And so, there's another level. I'm not saying I I, I don't try to do a good job for the person that, that comes in through my brother-in-law. But I mean, I think when you're in the client chair, uh, having the additional leverage of having your advisors involved early and having you know the m a resource that you ultimately choose feel like they've got skin in the game in terms of a team of advisors that will either be you know potentially a source of other opportunities in the future or not. I mean I think that's additional uh, you know protection and sort of uh, leverage for for the for the client
0: well and if and let's talk about like you know when we talk about this collaboration because like the the integ- the integration between tax legal and yeah. investments is yeah. so, it, like, it. they're all it, like the, my yeah. stupid analogy would be is like, it's a Venn diagram where 50% of all those topics are interrelated, but then there's totally. like 50% that is very special to tax or legal or what. And like, I think about like, you know, how many times, Dan, have you seen like, or probably you've probably been involved in this where you have a person that going to the $5 million example, again, you have $5 million sale. And then through the checkpoints you, and because they didn't prep, they get kind of, Hose at every checkpoint. And you have no idea whether they're going to be financially secure because you don't know whether they got 10 million bucks in the bank or not. You know what I mean? And you're sitting there going, well, I'm supposed to quote unquote successfully sell this company, but having no idea what successful to the client and I, and how different that would be is if you said, if we said, okay, Dan, here's client A, they literally only need 2 million at cash at closing to be financially free. Ideally we want the whole five, but like, yeah. How, how that can help you and then how, how you can help like view the different buyers in that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you got kind of some. Yeah. Yeah. Background.
1: I mean, here's first, I would say this, I mean, cause I think this is really important. I think if you, if you're talking to a lawyer that says you have to use the, my guy, the, you have to use my guy, the accountant, you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. I want to pick the accountant. I mean, to me, that's a warning sign, right? I mean, we work with, A bunch of different people. And my attitude is always, you know, I'm one part of this team. I want to work with whoever you want me to work with, whoever you feel comfortable with. So, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, I think people who want to have the opportunity to kind of hand pick their people and not ever, you know, be willing to collaborate with new people, I think that's dangerous. I think the other side of the equation is I have said to clients, in the middle of a transaction okay we've we've done this that we've worked with your person they're not up to it they can't do it they don't have the horsepower they don't have the experience and expertise for this transaction i'm sure they're great on your other stuff but we need to bring in we need to get access to another resource you know i i, I need to have access to somebody who can answer these questions because You know, the tax piece, you know, obviously when you're talking about structure of the transaction, you have to get that right on the front end. There's no going back and fixing it. So, (laughs) you know, I I think you you want, you know, if I was being interviewed by a client and they said, will you, you know, will you promise to work with uh, my person? I would say I'll promise to Dry. to work with your person. And I'll promise that if your person isn't up to it, I'm going to come to you and demand that we add another resource. And, uh, you know, I think that's, I mean, to me, there's no, a lot of MA people talk about, you know, this, the hub, you know, the, the, the wheel and the hub, and I don't really think about it that way. I think you have a team of advisors, all of whom are important, all of whom should be involved. I'm a over- you know I'm an over cooperator and collaborator I mean I want everybody on the team I don't i'm ha- I want to get the thoughts from the accountant on the on the on the stock purchase agreement i mean even the pieces of it that aren't tax related because you know they're smart and they have things to add just like the client does so you know I, I think finding people that are comfortable with collaboration but also willing you know to tell you hey we need some more horsepower over here I mean to me that's a big
0: when it, and they, when you have of all of advisors that have, that are specializing in, the you know, ideally even the specific transaction that you're trying to go across, but just, you know, transactions in general, you know, they're going to be able to kind of self-regulate each other. Cause I mean, you got attorneys that want billable hours, like yeah. accountants might be losing a thousand yep. dollars audit. And then the wealth manager wants yeah. liquidation event. <laughs> and so like you have all these people yeah. that have kind of different skill sets and you know, different ways that they make money and rightfully so, but like they can kind of self-regulate themselves if everybody's kind of talking yeah. the same thing in the, the same lingo. Yeah. So as we're kind right. of wrapping up here, Dan, this is, this has been a blast, man. Um, what, you know, if, if you're thinking about you know, the, the the listener who just got done with this and they're going, Holy cow, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so, yeah. right. I mean, which, you know, to yeah. get your 5 yeah. million cash up front. It is a lot of work, but the, you know, there's a, there's five, yeah. million. but the, what you're is right. You know, you know, actionable things that you could say, Hey, this is a way to start biting off the apple yeah. over stressing yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's like, we, we offer this all the time and, and frankly, you know, we're not as well positioned to do it well as, as you are. And there, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think, but I think my, my advice to anybody would be to, to, you know, put a program in place where you, you have, you know, whatever it is, like I said, I mean, it's sort of one of those things, you know, like when you set out to improve your exercise habits, don't say I'm going to exercise two hours a day, seven days a week. If you haven't done anything in the last three years, because (laughs) you're setting yourself up for failure, right? I mean, so, I mean, to me be realistic, but, but, but put a program in place where you commit to dedicating some Some time and some energy and some bandwidth to thinking about what it would look like to sell your business, and then figure out how to get you know a couple resources that have the ability to help you think about that effectively. Because just sitting down in your office and and dedicating time to thinking about it, it's you know it doesn't that doesn't do any good unless you have some resources that can help you figure out how to do that in 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 a way that's effective. But. You know, that would be my number one thing, would be to encourage people to get out in front of it, you know, because, and you're right, it is a lot of work. I would say two things about that. It's not one, you know, it's, you're talking about getting a big bag of money, 5 million bucks. I mean, very few things besides winning the lottery that involve getting 5 million bucks are, are easy. So, I mean, you know, I'd say, yeah, it's a lot of work that's that's a fact but I would also say it's not as much work if you invest some time on the front end I mean where it's really difficult and painful is where you've done nothing to think about what a sale looks like and then people I have this happen with regularity you know people come in here and they say you know you got a 62-year-old person, business owner, and they come in and they say, you know what, I'm just done with it. It's oh been a God. tough stretch. I'm done with it. I want out three months from now. Well, I mean, oh my God. I mean, that's a disaster, right? Because it's like, first of all, oftentimes it's been a tough stretch means that the things aren't great at the business. You know, you don't know where you are in terms of cycles. You don't know where the the the, the five best buyers are in terms of their cycle. I mean, so- you know, those conversations where somebody's like, I mean, it happens, right? You have health things or whatever, where you have to do it that way. But those conversations are really tough because we just don't have enough runway to be able to get the thing shined up. So my number one advice would be get out in front of it.
0: Well, and I was gonna say, even to that point, like if they do the right things, so if if you run the business like this, then the moment that you're ready to be out, you just pull the trigger and you're done and you make your 5 million bucks. Yeah. I mean, or you're collecting a million guess dollars. What? Cash, and, cash and, the and, whole way.
1: And, yeah. Right. And guess what? Your business will have run better in the interim. That's the <laughs> other thing is like, this, even if, even if you do this, even if you don't sell it for 10 years, you'll make more money and have more oh, fun in the interim. I know. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've talked about, one of the things that goes into this is, you know, there's a lot of people talk a lot about customer centricity, you know, and, and. Where, where you got too many of your eggs in one basket in terms of a customer management leadership centricity is a huge issue for buyers as well especially financial buyers and so again there's a the thing where you have to have some meaningful runway to be able to solve that problem if you have one person who has been the heartbeat of the business i mean people have no idea until they're in the you know negotiation with the buyer how much that hurts them on price when the buyer's saying yeah but like you haven't, you have no lieutenants, you have no deputies. I mean, it's if you get yeah. hit by a bus, this business is over. Yep. And, you know, so, I mean, that's you another thing. You can't replace someone like that. I mean, me you're talking me about a
0: 100, $125,000 CFO that you need. Like you got to yeah. find them, hire them. Yeah. They need probably 12 yeah. months to get up to speed. I mean, like you're talking 18 yeah. months before that's even like yeah. normalized.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I just think getting out in front. I really do. I think getting out in front is you talk about actions that will deliver return on investment. You know, I think getting out in front and taking, you know, some time to just look at the business from a through a through a, you know, transaction lens and ask yourself, what would a buyer be worried about? And then, you know, don't make a list of a hundred things. You know, make a list. You know, brainstorm and make your list of 40 things and then break them into, as you said earlier, break them into three or four categories and start attacking, you know, the ones that are the most significant. And, uh, you know, if you get to where you you identified 40 things you can do and you've only done 15 of them, but you did the 15 most critical, you know, you will have increased the value of the business dramatically.
0: Well, and I think Dan, like, you know, to your point, which, you know, a little plug here for what we got going on this, uh, growth and exit bootcamp, which is literally just a crash course and all this stuff coming up in October. Like if there's anything that I think about, like for, as an owner back before we sold is like, if I just understand this stuff, like, you know, can, to kind of de-stress this even more is if they learn, so if the listeners or the sellers learn this stuff, then it's easier to delegate it. You know, it's hard to delegate something you don't know. So Absolutely. that 100 list, you could totally Absolutely. say, here you go, Dan, here you go, CPA, here you go. like Now you do this stuff because I don't want to do it, but I actually right. understand what's going on.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: What's yeah. the best way to get in touch with you, Absolutely. man? What's the uh, contact information if people want to get in, uh, in touch?
1: Yeah, I tell people to call me. I mean, honestly, that to me that's it's uh, I know that's old school, but I mean, I I always like to I think it's a really efficient and obviously highly confidential way to to talk to people. So my my direct dial at my office is 612-349-5692 and my cell is 612-227-7568 and I'll just say <laughs> I said this to you Contrary to what people think about lawyers, I have a lot of conversations with people about trying to help people get pointed in the right direction where, you know, I never charge them a dime. I mean, this stuff, I like this stuff. I like putting these puzzles together. I like helping people that have built these businesses, harvest the value. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to have these conversations.
0: Well, and then one uh, last little plug for you too, because um, the conversation, if if the listeners, if you guys and gals want to reach out to Dan, you guys have an interesting business model of being able to do some flat rate projects and stuff like that. That's way more transparent than the endless billable hole that (laughs) happens
1: a lot. Yeah. transparent and the other thing is I just think it aligns interests I I don't want any scenario where my clients are are reluctant to call me I mean we want to keep the lines open and so we're obviously trying to figure out ways to make sure that happens
0: Dan this has been a blast man thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so if you're looking to level up your knowledge understand in greater detail all the stuff that Dan and I were talking about so you can delegate to your advisors, hold true to the valuation, increase the value of your company. Sign up while there's spots left at the Growth and Exit Bootcamp in October on the 8th, 9th, and 10th in Minneapolis at Bethel University. If you plug in LAB10, you will get a promo code and get 10% off of your ticket for listening and being a podcast fan, so appreciate it. Make sure that you're registering for the Growth and Exit Bootcamp, October eighth, 9th, and tenth, Bethel University. And if you're out of town, once you register, there will be a list of different hotels that you can stay at that are really close by, that are v- very nice and very reasonable. And if you have any questions feel free to reach out if you got questions on the agenda. The full agenda for the two and a half, three days is on the website, on the bootcamp page. We'll also attach to the show notes. It's literally everything that you could possibly want to know about how to manage this entire process. So I encourage you to do the hard work like Dan and I were talking about, and then you can at least learn what you're gonna have to do next, and then you can prioritize everything that you want so you don't have to make any major decisions. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoyed it, and I will talk to you next week.